Welcome to Sermon Extras. I'm Todd Bolander, and as usual, I'm here with Jerry Caesar, uh, preaching pastor at Gulf Coast Community Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. How are you today, Jerry? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Here we are. It's been a little while. It has been a few months. Uh, between conferences and schooling and other things on your part, and then major family life events, birth of a child on my part, it's uh, been difficult for us to arrange some time to sit down together. Yes, well, as I recall, child number three for us went from, you know, one week we were, you know, easily you know, changed our lives, but you could deal with it. Two, still man-to-man. Three, life went crazy. So I think that's the mode you're at right now. Yes, it is a little crazy, no doubt. Just learning how to do all of the routines with both of us, with both hands full, and then still an extra one, either running around or lying somewhere, needing our assistance, has been a creative process. Yeah, indeed. Well, you're, you've been in, a, since more or less the beginning of the year, you've been in a series in the book of Matthew you've titled Discipleship 1.0. And I wanted to start by taking a step back to the beginning of that series, and you, you picked Matthew to go through for this discussion of discipleship. Why Matthew? What makes Matthew different from yes. the other Gospels? Because... Uh, Great question. Disciples are in the other Gospels. They certainly are. And interestingly enough, the word disciple in some cases shows up less in Matthew than it does in others. So uh, why did you make a bad choice then? Yeah, well, actually, I think I made a good choice. <laughs> but but uh, it's interesting when you compare, say, Mark and Matthew's use. Mark is less discriminate in his use of the term. Matthew is more discriminate. So where he might... He might as it were, use the language of Mark word for word in sections, but where a disciple is used in Mark, he might not if it doesn't fit the, his usage of that word, how he's defining disciple in the context that he's writing to. So he is making a distinction that is rather clear when you look at how he does that between a, 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 the crowd that would follow Jesus in some broad sense, as Dr. Wyma put it, they were fans of Jesus, but not followers of Jesus in the true sense. Um, uh, Matthew would have put a distinction between the crowds and the disciples and would not have used the term as indiscriminately, maybe as maybe Mark would have in what he was trying to communicate. So uh, you think uh, by reading Matthew and the way that he uses the word, the Greek word that gets translated disciple, that he's making a point that maybe the other authors aren't by the way they use that word disciple? Yeah, I think, he, I think he is, or at least whether he's intending to make that point, it's the point that's in his head, so it comes through in some significant way. Uh, and I would add that I'm using Matthew because I believe the church put it at the front end of the, the canon of the New Testament because they believed it was the first place a disciple should start in their training as, as a believer. Um, and, and, and so because it, the, the Sermon on the Mount in particular taught so much about discipleship, uh, in our day we've, you know, we've called it Disciple 1.0 because the whole issue of what is a disciple, it's not, it's not Discipleship 101 as in entry-level discipleship, it's Disciple 1.0, which means what, 
was the original version, the original release of what a disciple looked like. And there's a lot that's said in our day about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, but and, and there's many good things. I mean, certainly we have to contextualize the gospel into our day, but we can't lose um, the essence of that original release, and that's really the goal in this series. So if I heard you correctly, it's Matthew's use of the word disciple that appears to be distinct from the other New Testament authors. Is there any other reason why Matthew you think you you posited you you suggested that you think the church put him there first because he should be read first so another that's another way of me uh or that makes me want to ask another question what is it you think is about the book of matthew that that they saw that you're you're trying to draw out right that makes that the appropriate first place for a new follower of jesus to go uh yes I, I would I would say that the focus on um, when you get to the end of the book, what is it? Go into all the world, and make disciples of all nations. We call this the Great Commission, arguably the only commission. But we go into all the world, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and then here's a big part that is left out in so much of our. Uh, Disciple, discipling processes, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, or I commanded you. So that commission is backed up by everything that's led up to it in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, in other words, what did he teach us? And there are five, as it were, extended sermons in Matthew's Gospel that really get to the heart and core of what that is that he has commanded us. And of course, in some sense, the, the centrality of that is found in uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but it goes beyond that because each of these sermons hits highlights uh, essential aspects of what it means to be a disciple. I think, I think, in a sense, you have to get the Sermon on the Mount right before you move on to the next one, in a sense, because uh, none of the rest will matter if you're not doing the will of Christ, which is the will of the Father. Got it. That's helpful. The um, the use of the word disciple and then the fact that M- Matthew ends on this, what does it mean to go make disciples, and pointing points you back to these five big teaching segments, sermon segments of, of Jesus's words, Matthew writing Jesus's words, long extended teaching sections that uh, just are uh, are those found in the other Gospels? Well, of course, in Mark, we'd have to say no. Um, Mark is certainly very action-oriented and, and very little, not entirely absent, but very little in the way of teaching. You do have uh, an extended you know, teaching, not, not as full as Matthew's, but in, in um, this, the Mount Olivet Prophecy and a couple other spots where there's teaching, but certainly nothing extended. Luke, on the other hand, does have many extended teaching sections. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, for all practical purposes, repeated in the Sermon on the Plain in, in, in Luke. Uh, and, and you get, Luke does a, a unique thing, whereas I, I find Matthew to almost seem in times intentionally vague about things so that you have to think deeply to get the point. Luke uh, often will 
explain things in language that a run-of-the-mill Gentile can understand. Can you can you give me an example of that, of Matthew being vague and Luke spelling it out? Uh, well, Matthew's frequently throwing in twos as an example, yeah, whereas Mark or Luke might have one blind guy. Matthew's got two, but he's got but he's got two in a variety of places. He never explains why two, but there's something to be picked up that we're supposed to to, to stop and think about. Why are there two? Uh, what's going on here with two? And I think that has to do with the whole issue of being a disciple and working together with, you know, he sent them out two by two. Um, and there are other aspects that that may, may lead to. Um, but a, a, a clear example of difference between the two is in the uh, Olivet Prophecy in Matthew. And I may not have the wording exact, but you've got that whole thing. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, uh, let the reader understand, you know, and, and it's similar, same as in Mark, um, let him who is in Judea flee. Well, in Luke, that just becomes when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem. I see. So it. it's just, uh, instead of let the reader understand, the author has understood <laughs> and is giving it to us. Um, well, that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Thank you, Luke. Yes, exactly. Makes, makes it uh, clear and plain. I see. That's a good distinction to make. What then is discipleship? So if you're attempting to recover what the original release is. How, how did, let's, can you first define it for me? And by definition, I don't mean, tell me what actions or what is contained, but how do you define it? If someone says, what is discipleship? Can you give me a what it is and not a um, how one does it? Can you make that distinction for me? Um, I'm not sure that I can, because I'm not sure that I can separate what it is from how one does it. Um, which might be part of the point of Matthew's teaching about discipleship. However, I think in its most basic form, a, a disciple is a learner or a, not a learner about, but a learner from Jesus, somebody who is learning to live their life in the will of Christ as Christ, as it were, was living his. The, the, uh, the base word of disciple is a learner. Uh, a follower, implicit. The idea is, you know, unlike, unlike the rabbis of the time, who people would would uh, go to them and seek them out and find them and sit at their feet. Jesus went and sought disciples, and then said, "Follow me." And then he was on the move. So there's a there's a big difference between his idea of discipleship than the common notion. Though obviously it incorporates elements of that, which include you're going to learn from me, but in that same context, and I'm now referring to Matthew 11, uh, for I'm meek and humble in heart. So what we learn from him is his humility, his uh, way of thinking, his view of the world. Um, and, and, and of course, that, that's all expressed, I think, most succinctly, we could say, in his humility. One could say love, but I think humility grasps the essence of it, includes all that love is, even more so. Then what does a disciple do if you had to sum it up? You, you said what a disciple is, is a follower, a learner, especially of Jesus's humility. If I, is that right? Right. Did I hear you right? Okay. So then if I could separate it out, what are the key things that a disciple does 
Yeah, well, I, I would think certainly if the Sermon on the Mount has anything to say about it, the first thing we'd have to say a disciple does is that he, he obeys the teachings of Jesus. He or she would obey the teachings of Jesus. Um, a disciple um, must put into practice, as that little parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount puts it, a disciple must put into practice the things that he taught and not just hear them. If we only hear them but do not do them, we deceive ourselves. And, of course, we're like that house which is destroyed in the storm. Um, and there's always a coming storm. <laughs> That's, there's always a coming storm. So we have to build in such a way as to not be swept away in that storm. And that is through obeying the teachings of Jesus. So what does a disciple do? Uh, a, a disciple forgives. Uh, a disciple reconciles with his brother. A disciple uh, loves his enemies. Um, uh, and, and, and even be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, back to a distinction between how Matthew might communicate it and Luke. Luke takes that line and it becomes, be merciful as your Father is merciful. So, oh, wow. Okay. So, so perfect, merciful. Now, the same ideas in Matthew. You just have to read it in context and you get the idea. He's talking about this loving your enemies and doing good to those who harm you, be perfect. Luke just goes ahead and says, he means be merciful just like God is merciful, which is the essence of what is being communicated there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's account as well. You think it's important, and I'm not disagreeing, but if it's important for us to go back to the first release, so to speak, of being a disciple, being a learner and a follower of Jesus who learns his humility and puts that into practice by being merciful and being forgiving and reconciling and those sorts of things. What is it then, in your estimation, that our contemporary discussions about discipleship are focused on? Um because you've made the comment in a couple of your series, a couple of, a couple of the sermons in this series, a couple of times, that it's important to go back. We're at the 2019 release, so we need to go back to the 1.0 to make sure that what was the original intention of discipleship is still present now. Right. So when you're saying that, I may be wrongly inferring that you think something is missing or out of sorts or I, no, out of balance. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. I do think okay. there is something so missing. So explain for me then what is it that, in your opinion, is either misaligned or just missing or needs to be replaced? Good question. I, I would put it this way. I think our modern focus on making disciples is just that. It's on making disciples, which is to say we've, we've uh, chopped off the end of the Great Commission, and all we think about when we think of the Great Commission is going to all the world and make disciples of all nations. End, period, next question. And so we focus on, I need to make disciples. You need to make disciples. We all need to make disciples. But, but before we can make disciples, there's this element of being we, we can't make what we are not. We cannot, yeah, so, so Jesus said, follow me, and Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. All we can ever say is, follow me as I follow Christ. And if we don't start with being, B-E-I-N-G, being, as opposed to uh, doing, um, we'll never get there. 
And, and so being a disciple precedes making a disciple. And so going to all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them, we can't truncate that great commission. We can't tr- lop that off the end of it. And, and so first, they become a part of the church community. Second, they are being taught to follow the teachings of Jesus. And, and I say become a part of the church community through baptism. Um, and then they're, they're baptized into the body of Christ. And then, so then they are taught the, to, to follow Jesus. And the, so they're being a disciple. And, and then in that being, they become one who can then and will then make disciples, both through their example, follow me as I follow Christ, and their words and teaching and instruction. That can never be separated. And the one who's making disciples is always becoming a disciple. He's, he's never finished, but he has to start by being, but then also becoming and continually growing in that. What about the person, because I hear two, two kind of camps in my, in my upbringing and background in Protestant, sort of mainline, evangelical American Christianity. And I don't say any of those terms like I'm bothered by that. Sure. Uh, um, I don't mean any of them to sound like an insult. I just, that's where I came up. And you get two kind of two kind of camps. You get the one that I think you're describing that says it's all about either personal or ministry uh, evangelism. So it's about me... Uh, talking to people about Jesus one-on-one, maybe in a park or or um, just meeting someone and asking them about why should they go to heaven, that sort of thing. What, what, you know, how do they think they're, where do they go, where they die, that sort of question. And then uh, along with that are the people who feel like they need to join um, either a missionary group or part of some evangelistic team that goes from town to town talking about Jesus. So you have that kind of camp that, that I think that's sort of what you're talking about, that emphasis of discipleship being about making disciples. But then there's this other, there was some pushback, I know, in growing up of what became termed as relationship evangelism or friendship evangelism or something like that, where it was be the type of person that builds a relationship or friendship with the person until they want to know why or something like that. What's wrong with either of those? Why? Why? Because I think I heard you address the one, the evangelism heavy. What about the other? other? Because when you talk about being merciful and being righteous, it sounds like you're saying Matthew promotes— relationship or friendship evangelism. Am I understanding you or am I not understanding you? What's the difference? Yeah, yes and no. So so first let me say this. You know, when I say that largely what we have going on in terms of discipleship is is what I described before, I certainly am not wanting to imply and wouldn't want anyone to take away that I think we've got it right and nobody else has. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm reading and studying other people that are thinking these same things and and and, and communicating these things. And the church at large, um, there, there are many camps that are doing it well. Um, I just want to make sure that we at our church and at Gulf Coast and in our context and in the streams that we swim in uh, don't get mixed up in, 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 in 
miss some of the front end of what it, it means to make a disciple. Uh, so back to the question, the, the relationship evangelism, I, we, we as 21st century American evangelical Christians typically love to live in the world of either or. It's got to be this or that. And we don't do well with gray. We don't do well with, it could be that both of these have truth in them. Um, it's been attributed to Francis of Assisi, though some argue that he may not have said it, that, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Um, I, I, I don't I, I, I don't agree with the statement. I don't think that is a good call because I would argue that it is always necessary at some point to use words. However, I think his point should be well taken, which is we better be preaching it with our life if we're preaching it with our words. And I think that's probably if he said it, what he was driving at. I, I don't think he would suggest that we should eliminate the words. Um, but if we aren't modeling the gospel, if we aren't followers of Jesus, then I think we do two things. I think we prove ourselves to be hypocrites to others, and in thereby we do the second thing, which is we inoculate people to the gospel. They're convinced they've heard the gospel, they've seen it, and they're not interested, but what they've really had is a weakened form of the virus, if you will, uh, that has only uh, made them immune to it. Let's see. So don't discount either but make sure you're you're involved in both is yeah we what should I heard. we should we should have relationships with people we should look for opportunities to communicate the truth and we should be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have because if we are truly living the gospel people are going to be asking why do you live that way and if we don't have people that know us well asking that question we should probably ponder what we aren't doing that Jesus has asked us to do because believers should be living in in some ways vehemently different than the world around us and I think our series you know just in the Sermon on the Mount portion should indicate that merciful and patient is the Lord this is our God this is our God Good, because that leads me to my last question for for our time together today uh, about the upside-down nature of being a disciple of Jesus, about Jesus' commands and calls and, and, and your message on the Beatitudes and then following up messages in chapter 5 about Christ and the law and understanding what it means to be perfect. You you have referenced several times this sort of Jesus seems to be living in an upside-down world with the things he's saying. So tell me, what is right-side-up and what is upside-down, um, and, and 
how should I be thinking about Jesus's claims about what it means to live and when I'm blessed and not what is right and wrong? How do I understand justice? Right. That, that's a, those are there's a lot there um and f- so for the remaining hour no <laughs> i will uh, extrapolate on that but no um so uh, certainly the beatitudes blessed are um they they jar they at least should jar us and we've heard them so many times we just think of them as nice poetry for cards or something but uh, certainly their intent is to be jarring at some level because although everything there in some way is found in the Old Testament, so it's not as if Jesus came up with something new, and he's using what would be wisdom literature. This style of blessed are is from the wisdom psalms or places even in Proverbs and so forth. Um, and, and, and so what he's doing is, is describing for us uh, the wisdom of God, whereby we need to live according uh, to that wisdom. And, and so uh, I, I think that this upside down world, and, and if you look at the, the eight core beatitudes, there's a, there's a you know, ninth one added on at the end that's not following the same form, but there are the first eight follow a form. And so they're, they're lined up in s- sort of a poetic, if you will, or uh, a structure. The first four, speak of conditions of humanity. The next four speak well, let of... Let me read those then yeah. real quick. So, mm-hmm. blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So you're saying those four are conditions. Those are conditions. Poor in spirit, meek, um, um, morning, morning, and then of course, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then the next four, uh, speak of activities that somebody does. And I would make the case that they're activities that the disciples are to be found doing toward those, um, that are in the first four. So let me read those blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor and pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, and so you notice the first and the last end identically. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, present tense. And, and the others, uh, the, I, I think the correspondence works from the inside out, if you will, or you could say the outside in. In other words, the first and the eighth and the second and the seventh and and so forth they correspond um and and so when we set out as disciples to do those last four and meeting the needs of 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 those in the first four who may be other disciples certainly and are also called to do this but when we set out to do that we've entered into the kingdom of heaven now in our thinking the entering the kingdom of heaven is to find success, have our dreams fulfilled. You know, we find the perfect career, uh, the the uh, trophy wife, uh, for the case of a male. Uh, however, a woman would describe the perfect uh, husband. I'm not sure what that would be. Uh, and, and we could go down the list, you know, two, two children, one male, one female, whatever that list is for people. 
and 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 a, and a savings account whereby we can retire and and you know live the golden years out. That's the that's the at least the American idea of what success looks like. And and Jesus seems to have a different idea of where the top is, because for him that's not the top. And if we go to Luke, of course, it might appear to be the bottom rather than the top. Um, so I, I would suggest that that kind of gets to the essence and core of what that upside down kingdom is. And then you see it played out, described in, in 521 through 48, and in, in this description of how we live our lives, um, where we, we, we not only shouldn't kill our brother or sister, but we should then uh, be reconciled to them and, and go to extremes for that purpose of reconciliation. We we, we, we should love our enemies. We should turn our, uh, the other cheek. When somebody slaps us in one, turn the other cheek. Um, uh, we should give to him who asks. We should go two miles instead of one, which, you know, the implication there was in the context of a Roman soldier uh, saying, pick up my gear and carry it with me for a mile. And, you know, I don't have a choice about that. I had to do that. But I do have a choice about that second mile. And so by doing that, I'm saying, uh, you don't have power over me. Uh, there, there is a resistance involved, but it's not a violent resistance. It's a loving resistance. And, 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 and that has a lot to say about this upside down nature and how it works. Then bring it home for me. I'm an American suburban middle-class, the things you described as the typical, end game goal for someone like me. And a lot of ways, those are things that I've been told are wise. I've been told it's wise to save money for my retirement. I've been told um, it only makes sense. And I've been even quoted passages like, if a man doesn't take care of his own household, then he's worse than an unbeliever. And I've been told that that fits into that. So how am I... How is Jesus getting it wrong then <laughs> right. that I shouldn't have a savings account in retirement and take care of my family? Otherwise, I'm worse than an unbeliever. Um, where, where's? It sounds like someone's got something crosswired there. Yeah, I would say somebody probably does have something crosswired. We'll, we'll have to decide on who that is. But um, I, I, there's no doubt that, for instance, the book of Proverbs, which is biblical wisdom, instructs us about savings, as it were, instructs us about being wise and thinking about the future and on and on. But the definition that the biblical writers would have had about what it means to provide for your family is vastly different than what, say, an American might have about what it means to provide for your family for a starting point. Um, having food and clothing therewith to be content uh, is how Paul puts it. I believe it's uh, Timothy. And, and I don't think having food and clothing meaning, means uh, an entire wardrobe of extremely nice clothes, uh, though that's how we would typically interpret it. Uh, and providing for your family, both now and for the future, does not include having lavish, va lavish vacations uh, regularly and spending your retirement years in luxury. Uh, I think Jesus might say, yes, I do want you to provide for your family and look around. This is your family. Uh, the one who has come and listened to me and does my will, that's your family. So now provide for them. And, and so he's 
transform that same wisdom into a whole different thing because now I'm responsible for my brother, my sister, um, my fellow believer, those disciples that were the poor in spirit. Uh, and in the early church, of course, that was the vast majority of the church. Uh, to be rich and to come into the church not only was difficult for the reasons we think of today, that people don't feel a need, they don't feel like they have some uh, purpose for coming to Jesus because their life's pretty good, but to be rich and come into the church in their day included all of that, I'm sure, but it also included the fact that now I'm associating with people that it will not only not gain me anything in the world, it will cost me in the world. Right. Big time. Yeah. Because that still plays out today, even though it's not written down, it's an unwritten rule. Well, it was essentially a written rule then, not maybe literally, but that was just how society functioned. Yeah, I, um, as you're even talking, I'm thinking if those are the right, if those goals equal wisdom, then Paul was a fool and Jesus was a fool. The apostles were all fools. And most of the early church was filled with fools that we would all look at and say, what's wrong with all of them? And they would probably look at us and say, what's wrong with all of them? Yeah, yes, they would. You see that playing out when people try to interpret the early portion of the book of Acts. And they, as Americans, of course, they look at people selling their houses and giving and, and taking care of the poor. And they say, yeah, they got that wrong. And we see, they've got this wild interpretation that says they got it wrong when Luke is clearly putting that in there to say, look, they're fulfilling what Christ said to do. They're actually doing what Jesus said. Uh, Luke is putting it in there as a positive thing. And yet we have twisted that into being some sort of mistake that the early church made, which only reveals our inability to see clearly uh, the teachings of Jesus and how they're to be played out. So then what can I do this week if I'm, if I'm the person who's in that mindset? I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm your typical middle-class American. I've got some savings. I've got kids. I'm headed for retirement. I've got a nice house. I have more than just the clothes on my back and the food I need for today. Uh, what... What are some things that I could do to move in that direction um, to get me closer? What do I need to at least consider that maybe I'm not thinking about? Right. It's a good question. Um, I would start with look around you in your church family, your community group. If, if you don't find it in your community group, broaden beyond that to your church family and find believers that have needs and they're there they may not be talking about it because it's shameful in our culture to talk about your needs and find ways that your abundance can meet their lack that we we shouldn't start by assuming that when i get a raise or i have some great bonus that it's for me to figure out what i'm going to do with it it doesn't belong to us it belongs to god and he gives it to us for the purpose of human flourishing that the the putting us in the garden and in his image means that just as he provided for us we are now to extend that garden as it were to others and provide for others uh, i think that carries through uh in, into our lives as believers uh, if we don't find enough needs there i think we could certainly prayerfully expand beyond that and 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 maybe talk to the leaders of our church about other church communities that might be less fortunate than our own where there would be greater needs. And one of the things we're exploring is a, 
an elder team is how do we link arms with churches that would have as a church base uh, far less access to resources than, say, our church might have as an average. Uh, we have plenty of need in our church, um, but there are churches that would make our need look like nothing at all. And yet they're part of the body of Christ. And the fact that our culture over 2,000 years has divided the church between, you know, to where we have this more, more of a homogenous church life where we church with people that are like us, which I think is a problem. Um, so therefore, we have to begin to look for not just our within our own church walls, but beyond that to other church walls to find out where is a family of God have, does it have needs that we need to meet? And then, of course, beyond the family of God, our generosity can extend, but that's our first and, and primary uh, priority. So if I'm starting, those are the places I'm going to start and, and, and start with prayer. Repent to the Lord where we need to repent, ask him to change our thinking, and then just continue to go over these teachings of Jesus because teaching them to obey until we're obeying, we need to continue to go over them and talk with one another about them. Uh, that's vital. And, and, you know, sometimes I tell people, and I think I'll add it here. Sometimes when they ask, well, well how do I do this? My, my answer is honestly, I don't know. I, I, I know this, this is what Jesus is saying. Now, what does that look like in every specific situation? I'm not sure yet myself, but I know if we don't start talking about it and thinking about it, we'll never figure that out. Instead of the not-so-untypical approach to some of these hard teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, which would basically say, well, I don't understand it, so next, <laughs> we just leave it there. I think we have to take soberly the warnings of not obeying Jesus that fall within that same sermon and at the end of the gospel and say, okay, therefore I must continue to ponder these things until I figure out what it looks like. That's great. Thank you for that. <laughs> now, now I have about 20 things to think about next week. <laughs>